Chapter One, Part H of the Wealth of Nations, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Five, Chapter One, Part H, of the Expenses of the Sovereign or Commonwealth. The privileges of the clergy in those ancient times which to us who live in the present times appear the most absurd their total exemption from the secular jurisdiction for example or what in england was called the benefit of clergy were the natural or rather the necessary consequences of this state of things how dangerous must it have been for the sovereign to attempt to punish a clergyman for any crime whatever if his order were disposed to protect him and to represent either the proof as insufficient for convicting so holy a man or the punishment as too severe to be inflicted upon one whose person had been rendered sacred by religion. The sovereign could, in such circumstances, do no better than leave him to be tried by the ecclesiastical courts, who, for the honor of their own order, were interested to restrain, as much as possible, every member of it from committing enormous crimes, or even from giving occasion to such gross scandal as might disgust the minds of the people. In the state in which things were, through the greater part of Europe, during the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, and for some time both before and after that period, the constitution of the Church of Rome may be considered as the most formidable combination that ever was formed against the authority and security of civil government, as well as against the liberty, reason, and happiness of mankind, which can flourish only where civil government is able to protect them in that constitution the grossest delusions of superstition were supported in such a manner by the private interests of so great a number of people as put them out of all danger from any assault of human reason because though human reason might perhaps have been able to unveil even to the eyes of the common people some of the delusions of superstition it could never have dissolved the ties of private interest had this constitution been attacked by no other enemies but the feeble efforts of human reason, it must have endured forever. But that immense and well-built fabric, which all the wisdom and virtue of man could never have shaken, much less have overturned, was, by the natural course of things, first weakened, and afterwards in part destroyed, and is now likely, in the course of a few centuries more, perhaps, to crumble into ruins altogether. The gradual improvements of arts, manufactures and commerce the same causes which destroyed the power of the great barons destroyed in the same manner through the greater part of europe the whole temporal manufactures and commerce the clergy like the great barons found something for which they could exchange their rude produce and thereby discovered the means of spending their whole revenues upon their own persons without giving any considerable share of them to other people their charity became gradually less extensive their hospitality less liberal or less profuse their retainers became consequently less numerous and by degrees dwindled away altogether the clergy too like the great barons wished to get a better rent from their landed estates in order to spend it in the same manner upon the gratification of their own private vanity and folly but this increase of rent could be got only by granting leases to their tenants who thereby became in a great measure independent of them the ties of interest which bound the inferior ranks of people to the clergy were in this manner gradually broken and dissolved they were even broken and dissolved sooner than those which bound the same ranks of people to the great barons 
because the benefices of the church being, the greater part of them, much smaller than the estates of the great barons, the possessor of each benefice was much sooner able to spend the whole of its revenue upon his own person. During the greater part of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, the power of the great barons was, through the greater part of Europe, in full vigor. But the temporal power of the clergy, the absolute command which they had once had over the great body of the people, was very much decayed. The power of the church was, by that time, very nearly reduced, through the greater part of Europe, to what arose from their spiritual authority, and even that spiritual authority was much weakened when it ceased to be supported by the charity and hospitality of the clergy. The inferior ranks of people no longer looked upon that order as they had done before, as the comforters of their distress and the relievers of their indigence. On the contrary, they were provoked and disgusted by the vanity, luxury, and expense of the richer clergy, who appeared to spend upon their own pleasures what had always before been regarded as the patrimony of the poor. In this situation of things, the sovereigns in the different states of Europe endeavored to recover the influence which they had once had in the disposal of the great benefices of the church, by procuring to the deans and chapters of each diocese the restoration of their ancient right of electing the bishop, and to the monks of each abbacy that of electing the abbot. The re-establishing this ancient order was the object of several statutes enacted in England during the course of the fourteenth century, particularly of what is called the Statute of Provisors, and of the Pragmatic Sanction, established in France in the fifteenth century. In order to render the election valid, it was necessary that the sovereign should both consent to it beforehand, and afterwards approve of the person elected and though the election was still supposed to be free, he had, however, all the indirect means which his situation necessarily afforded him, of influencing the clergy in his own dominions. Other regulations, of a similar tendency, were established in other parts of Europe. But the power of the Pope, in the collation of the great benefices of the Church, seems, before the Reformation, to have been nowhere so effectually and so universally restrained as in France and England. The Concordat, afterwards, in the sixteenth century, gave to the kings of France the absolute right of presenting to all the great, or what are called the consistorial, benefices of the Gallican Church. Since the establishment of the pragmatic sanction and of the Concordat, the clergy of France have in general shown less respect to the decrees of the papal court than the clergy of any other Catholic country. In all the disputes which their sovereign has had with the Pope, they have almost constantly taken part with the former. This independency of the clergy of France upon the court of Rome seems to be principally founded upon the pragmatic sanction and the concordat. In the earlier periods of the monarchy, the clergy of France appear to have been as much devoted to the Pope as those of any other country. When Robert, the second prince of the Capetian race, was most unjustly excommunicated by the court of Rome, his own servants, it is said, threw the victuals which came from his table to the dogs, and refused to taste anything themselves which had been polluted by the contact of a person in his situation. They were taught to do so, it may very safely be presumed, by the clergy of his own dominions. The claim of collating to the great benefices of the church, a claim in defense of which the court of Rome had frequently shaken, and sometimes overturned, the thrones of some of the greatest sovereigns in Christendom, was in this manner either restrained or modified, or given up altogether, in many different parts of Europe, even before the time of the Reformation. As the clergy had now less influence over the people, so the state had more influence over the clergy. 
the clergy therefore had both less power and less inclination to disturb the state the authority of the church of rome was in this state of declension when the disputes which gave birth to the reformation began in germany and soon spread themselves through every part of europe the new doctrines were everywhere received with a high degree of popular favor they were propagated with all that enthusiastic zeal which commonly animates the spirit of party when it attacks established authority the teachers of those doctrines though perhaps in other respects not more learned than many of the divines who defended the established church seem in general to have been better acquainted with ecclesiastical history and with the origin and progress of that system of opinions upon which the authority of the church was established and they had thereby the advantage in almost every dispute the austerity of their manners gave them authority with the common people who contrasted the strict regularity of their conduct with the disorderly lives of the greater part of their own clergy they possessed too in a much higher degree than their adversaries all the arts of popularity and of gaining proselytes arts which the lofty and dignified sons of the church had long neglected as being to them in a great measure useless the reason of the new doctrines recommended them to some their novelty to many the hatred and contempt of the established clergy to a still greater number but the zealous passionate and fanatical though frequently coarse and rustic eloquence with which they were almost everywhere inculcated recommended them to by far the greatest number the success of the new doctrines was almost everywhere so great that the princes who at that time happened to be on bad terms with the court of rome were by means of them easily enabled in their own dominions to overturn the church which having lost the respect and veneration of the inferior ranks of people could make scarce any resistance the court of rome had disobliged some of the smaller princes in the northern parts of germany whom it had probably considered as too insignificant to be worth the managing they universally therefore established the reformation in their own dominions the tyranny of christian the second and of troll archbishop of Upsal, enabled gustavus vasa to expel them both from sweden the pope favored the tyrant and the archbishop and gustavus vasa found no difficulty in establishing the reformation in sweden christian the second was afterwards deposed from the throne of denmark where his conduct had rendered him as odious as in sweden the pope however was still disposed to favor him and frederick of holstein who had mounted the throne in his stead revenged himself by following the example of gustavus vasa the magistrates of bern and zurich who had no particular quarrel with the pope established with great ease the reformation in their respective cantons where just before some of the clergy had by an imposture somewhat grosser than ordinary rendered the whole order both odious and contemptible in this critical situation of its affairs the papal court was at sufficient pains to cultivate the friendship of the powerful sovereigns of france and spain of whom the latter was at that time emperor of germany with their assistance it was enabled though not without great difficulty and much bloodshed either to suppress altogether or to obstruct very much the progress of the reformation in their dominions it was well enough inclined too to be complacent to the king of england but from the circumstances of the times it could not be so without giving offence to a still greater sovereign charles v king of spain and emperor of germany henry the eighth accordingly though he did not embrace himself the greater part of the doctrines of the reformation was yet enabled 
by their general prevalence, to suppress all the monasteries and to abolish the authority of the Church of Rome in his dominions. That he should go so far, though he went no further, gave some satisfaction to the patrons of the Reformation, who, having got possession of the government in the reign of his son and successor completed, without any difficulty, the work which Henry the Eighth had begun. In some countries, as in Scotland, where the government was weak, unpopular, and not very firmly established, the Reformation was strong enough to overturn, not only the church, but the state likewise, for attempting to support the church. Among the followers of the Reformation, dispersed in all the different countries of Europe, there was no general tribunal, which, like that of the court of Rome, or an ecumenical council, could settle all disputes among them, and, with irresistible authority, prescribe to all of them the precise limits of orthodoxy. When the followers of the Reformation in one country, therefore, happened to differ from their brethren in another, as they had no common judge to appeal to, the dispute could never be decided, and many such disputes arose among them. Those concerning the government of the church, and the right of conferring ecclesiastical benefices, were perhaps the most interesting to the peace and welfare of civil society. They gave birth, accordingly, to the two principal parties or sects among the followers of the Reformation, the Lutheran and Calvinistic sects, the only sects among them of which the doctrine and discipline have ever yet been established by law in any part of Europe. The followers of Luther together with what is called the Church of England, preserved, more or less, the Episcopal government, established subordination among the clergy, gave the sovereign the disposal of all the bishoprics, and other consistorial benefices within his dominions, and thereby rendered him the real head of the church, and without depriving the bishop of the right of collating to the smaller benefices within his diocese, they, even to those benefices, not only admitted, but favored the right of presentation, both in the sovereign and in all other lay patrons. This system of church government was, from the beginning, favorable to peace and good order, and to submission to the civil sovereign. It has never, accordingly, been the occasion of any tumult or civil commotion in any country in which it has once been established. The Church of England, in particular, has always valued herself, with great reason, upon the unexceptionable loyalty of her principles. Under such a government, the clergy naturally endeavored to recommend themselves to the sovereign, to the court, and to the nobility and gentry of the country, by whose influence they chiefly expect to obtain preferment. They pay court to those patrons, sometimes no doubt, by the vilest flattery and ascension, but frequently, too, by cultivating all those arts which best deserve, and which are therefore most likely to gain them, the esteem of people of rank and fortune by their knowledge in all the different branches of useful and ornamental learning, by the decent liberality of their manners, by the social good-humor of their conversation, and by their avowed contempt of those absurd and hypocritical austerities which fanatics inculcate and pretend to practice, in order to draw upon themselves the veneration and upon the greater part of men of rank and fortune, who avow that they do not practice them, the abhorrence of the common people." Such a clergy, however, while they pay their court in this manner to the higher ranks of life, are very apt to neglect altogether the means of maintaining their influence and authority with the lower. They are listened to, esteemed, and respected by their superiors, but before their inferiors they are frequently incapable of defending, effectually, and to the conviction of such hearers, their own sober and moderate doctrines against the most ignorant enthusiast who chooses to attack them. The followers of Zwinglius, 
or more properly those of Calvin, on the contrary, bestowed upon the people of each parish, whenever the church became vacant, the right of electing their own pastor, and established at the same time the most perfect equality among the clergy. The former part of this institution, as long as it remained in vigor, seems to have been productive of nothing but disorder and confusion, and to have tended equally to corrupt the morals both of the clergy and of the people. The latter part seems never to have had any effects but what were perfectly agreeable. As long as the people of each parish preserved the right of electing their own pastors, they acted almost always under the influence of the clergy, and generally of the most factious and fanatical of the order. The clergy, in order to preserve their influence in those popular elections, became, or affected to become many of them, fanatics themselves encouraged fanaticism among the people, and gave the preference almost always to the most fanatical candidate. So small a matter as the appointment of a parish priest occasioned almost always a violent contest, not only in one parish, but in all the neighboring parishes who seldom failed to take part in the quarrel. When the parish happened to be situated in a great city, it divided all the inhabitants into two parties, and when that city happened either to constitute itself a little republic, or to be the head and capital of a little republic, as in the case with many of the considerable cities in Switzerland and Holland, every paltry dispute of this kind, over and above exasperating the animosity of all their other factions, threatened to leave behind it both a new schism in the church and a new faction in the state. In those small republics, therefore, the magistrate very soon found it necessary, for the sake of preserving the public peace, to assume to himself the right of presenting to all vacant benefices. In Scotland, the most extensive country in which this Presbyterian form of church government has ever been established, the rights of patronage were in effect abolished by the act which established presbytery in the beginning of the reign of William III. That act, at least, put in the power of certain classes of people in each parish to purchase, for a very small price, the right of electing their own pastor. The constitution which this act established was allowed to subsist for about two and twenty years, but was abolished by the tenth of Queen Anne C. 12, on account of the confusions and disorders which this more popular mode of election had almost everywhere occasioned. In so extensive a country as Scotland, however, a tumult in a remote parish was not so likely to give disturbance to government as in a smaller state. The tenth of Queen Anne restored the rights of patronage. But though, in Scotland, the law gives the benefice, without any exception, to the person presented by the patron, yet the church requires sometimes, for she has not in this respect been very uniform in her decisions, a certain concurrence of the people before she will confer upon the presentee what is called the cure of souls, or the ecclesiastical jurisdiction in the parish. She sometimes, at least from an affected concern for the peace of the parish, delays the settlement till this concurrence can be procured. The private tampering of some of the neighboring clergy, sometimes to procure, but more frequently to prevent this concurrence, and the popular arts which they cultivate, in order to enable them upon such occasions to tamper more effectually, are perhaps the causes which principally keep up whatever remains of the old fanatical spirit, either in the clergy or in the people of Scotland. The equality which the Presbyterian form of church government establishes among the clergy consists, first, in the equality of authority or ecclesiastical jurisdiction, and, secondly, in the equality of benefice. In all Presbyterian churches, the equality of authority is perfect, that of benefice is not so. 
The difference, however, between one benefice and another is seldom so considerable as commonly to tempt the possessor even of the small one to pay court to his patron by the vile arts of flattery and ascension in order to get a better. In all the Presbyterian churches, where the rights of patronage are thoroughly established, it is by nobler and better arts that the established clergy in general endeavor to gain the favor of their superiors by their learning, by the irreproachable regularity of their life, and by the faithful and diligent discharge of their duty. Their patrons even frequently complain of the independency of their spirit, which they are apt to construe into ingratitude for past favors, but which, at worst, perhaps, is seldom any more than that indifference which naturally arises from the consciousness that no further favors of the kind are ever to be expected. There is scarce, perhaps, to be found anywhere in Europe a more learned, decent, independent, and respectable set of men than the greater part of the Presbyterian clergy of Holland, Geneva, Switzerland, and Scotland. Where the church benefices are all nearly equal, none of them can be very great, and this mediocrity of benefice, though it may be, no doubt, carried too far, has, however, some very agreeable effects. Nothing but exemplary morals can give dignity to a man of small fortune. The vices of levity and vanity necessarily render him ridiculous, and are, besides, almost as ruinous to him as they are to the common people. In his own conduct, therefore, he is obliged to follow that system of morals which the common people respect the most. He gains their esteem and affection by that plan of life which his own interest and situation would lead him to follow. The common people look upon him with that kindness with which we naturally regard one who approaches somewhat to our own condition, but who, we think, ought to be in a higher. Their kindness naturally provokes his kindness. He becomes careful to instruct them, and attentive to assist and relieve them. He does not even despise the prejudices of people who are disposed to be so favorable to him, and never treats them with those contemptuous and arrogant airs which we so often meet with in the proud dignitaries of opulent and well-endowed churches. The Presbyterian clergy, accordingly, have more influence over the minds of the common people than perhaps the clergy of any other established church. It is, accordingly, in Presbyterian countries only, that we ever find the common people converted, without persecution completely, and almost to a man, to the established church. In countries where church benefices are, the greater part of them, very moderate, a chair in a university is generally a better establishment than a church benefice. The universities have, in this case, the picking and choosing of their members from all the churchmen of the country who in every country constitute by far the most numerous class of men of letters where church benefices on the contrary are many of them very considerable the church naturally draws from the universities the greater part of their eminent men of letters who generally find some patron who does himself honor by procuring them church preferment in the former situation we are likely to find the universities filled with the most eminent men of letters that are to be found in the country in the latter, we are likely to find few eminent men among them, and those few among the youngest members of the society, who are likely, too, to be drained away from it before they can have acquired experience and knowledge enough to be of much use to it. It is observed by Mr. de Voltaire that Father Poirier, a Jesuit of no great eminence in the Republic of Letters, was the only professor they had ever had in France, whose works were worth the reading. 
in a country which has produced so many eminent men of letters it must appear somewhat singular that scarce one of them should have been a professor in a university the famous cassindi was in the beginning of his life a professor in the university of aix upon the first dawning of his genius it was represented to him that by going into the church he could easily find a much more quiet and comfortable subsistence as well as a better situation for pursuing his studies and he immediately followed the advice the observation of mr de voltaire may be applied i believe not only to france but to all other roman catholic countries we very rarely find in any of them an eminent man of letters who is a professor in a university except perhaps in the professions of law and physic professions from which the church is not so likely to draw them after the church of rome that of england is by far the richest and best endowed church in christendom in england accordingly the church is continually draining the universities of all their best and ablest members and an old college tutor who is known and distinguished in europe as an eminent man of letters is as rarely to be found there as in any roman catholic country in geneva on the contrary in the protestant cantons of switzerland in the protestant countries of germany in holland in scotland in sweden and denmark the most eminent men of letters whom those countries have produced have not all indeed but the far greater part of them been professors in universities in those countries the universities are continually draining the church of all its most eminent men of letters it may perhaps be worth while to remark that if we accept the poets a few orators and a few historians the far greater part of the other eminent men of letters both of greece and rome appear to have been either public or private teachers generally either of philosophy or of rhetoric this remark will be found to hold true from the days of lysias and isocrates of plato and aristotle down to those of plutarch and epictetus suetonius and quintilian to impose upon any man the necessity of teaching year after year in any particular branch of science seems in reality to be the most effectual method for rendering him completely master of it himself by being obliged to go every year over the same ground if he is good for anything he necessarily becomes in a few years well acquainted with every part of it and if upon any particular point he should form too hasty an opinion one year when he comes in the course of his lectures to reconsider the same subject the year after he is very likely to correct it as to be a teacher of science is certainly the natural employment of a mere man of letters so is it likewise perhaps the education which is most likely to render him a man of solid learning and knowledge the mediocrity of church benefices naturally tends to draw the greater part of men of letters in the country where it takes place to the employment in which they can be the most useful to the public and at the same time to give them the best education perhaps they are capable of receiving it tends to render their learning both as solid as possible and as useful as possible the revenue of every established church such parts of it accepted as may arise from particular lands or manors is a branch it ought to be observed of the general revenue of the state which is thus diverted to a purpose very different from the defence of the state the tithe for example is a real land tax which puts it out of the power of the proprietors of land to contribute so largely towards the defence of the state as they otherwise might be able to do the rent of land however is according to some the sole fund 
and according to others the principal fund from which in all great monarchies the exigencies of the state must be ultimately supplied the more of this fund that is given to the church the less it is evident can be spared to the state it may be laid down as a certain maxim that all other things being supposed equal the richer the church the poorer must necessarily be either the sovereign on the one hand or the people on the other and in all cases the less able must the state be to defend itself in several protestant countries particularly in all the protestant cantons of switzerland the revenue which anciently belonged to the roman catholic church the tithes and church lands has been found a fund sufficient not only to afford competent salaries to the established clergy but to defray with little or no addition all the other expenses of the state the magistrates of the powerful canton of Bern, in particular have accumulated out of the savings from this fund a very large sum supposed to amount to several millions part of which is deposited in a public treasure and part is placed at interest in what are called the public funds of the different indebted nations of europe chiefly in those of france and great britain what may be the amount of the whole expense which the church either of Bern or of any other protestant canton costs the state i do not pretend to know by a very exact account it appears that in seventeen fifty five the whole revenue of the clergy of the church of scotland including their glebe or church lands and the rent of their manses or dwelling-houses estimated according to a reasonable valuation amounted only to sixty eight thousand five hundred and fourteen pounds one shilling five and a half pence this very moderate revenue affords a decent subsistence to nine hundred and forty four ministers the whole expense of the church including what is occasionally laid out for the building and reparation of churches and of the manses of ministers cannot well be supposed to exceed eighty or eighty-five thousand pounds a year the most opulent church in christendom does not maintain better the uniformity of faith the fervour of devotion the spirit of order regularity and austere morals in the great body of the people than this very poorly endowed church of scotland all the good effects both civil and religious which an established church can be supposed to produce are produced by it as completely as by any other the greater part of the protestant churches of switzerland which in general are not better endowed than the church of scotland produce those effects in a still higher degree in the greater part of the protestant cantons there is not a single person to be found who does not profess himself to be of the established church if he professes himself to be of any other indeed the law obliges him to leave the canton but so severe or rather indeed so oppressive a law could never have been executed in such free countries had not the diligence of the clergy beforehand converted to the established church the whole body of the people with the exception of perhaps a few individuals only in some parts of switzerland accordingly where from the accidental union of a protestant and roman catholic country the conversion has not been so complete both religions are not only tolerated but established by law the proper performance of every service seems to require that its pay or recompense should be as exactly as possible proportioned to the nature of the service if any service is very much underpaid it is very apt to suffer by the meanness and incapacity of the greater part of those who are employed in it if it is very much overpaid it is apt to suffer perhaps still more by their negligence and idleness a man of a large revenue 
whatever may be his profession, thinks he ought to live like other men of large revenues, and to spend a great part of his time in festivity, in vanity, and in dissipation. But in a clergyman, this train of life not only consumes the time which ought to be employed in the duties of his function, but in the eyes of the common people, destroys almost entirely that sanctity of character, which can alone enable him to perform those duties with proper weight and authority. Part 4. Of the Expense of Supporting the Dignity of the Sovereign Over and above the expenses necessary for enabling the sovereign to perform his several duties, a certain expense is requisite for the support of his dignity. This expense varies both with the different periods of improvement and with the different forms of government. In an opulent and improved society, where all the different orders of people are growing every day more expensive in their houses, in their furniture, in their tables, in their dress, and in their equipage, it cannot well be expected that the sovereign should alone hold out against the fashion. He naturally, therefore, or rather necessarily, becomes more expensive in all those different articles too. His dignity even seems to require that he should become so. As, in point of dignity, a monarch is more raised above his subjects than the chief magistrate of any republic is ever supposed to be above his fellow-citizens, so a greater expense is necessary for supporting that higher dignity. We naturally expect more splendor in the court of a king than in the mansion-house of a doge or burgomaster. Conclusion The expense of defending the society and that of supporting the dignity of the chief magistrate are both laid out for the general benefit of the whole society. It is reasonable, therefore, that they should be defrayed by the general contribution of the whole society, all the different members contributing, as nearly as possible, in proportion to their respective abilities. The expense of the administration of justice, too, may no doubt be considered as laid out for the benefit of the whole society. There is no impropriety, therefore, in its being defrayed by the general contribution of the whole society. The persons, however, who give occasion to this expense are those who, by their injustice in one way or another, make it necessary to seek redress or protection from the courts of justice. The persons, again, most immediately benefited by this expense are those whom the courts of justice either restore to their rights or maintain in their rights. The expense of the administration of justice, therefore, may very properly be defrayed by the particular contribution of one or other, or both, of those two different sets of persons, according as different occasions may require, that is, by the fees of court. It cannot be necessary to have recourse to the general contribution of the whole society, except for the conviction of those criminals who have not themselves any estate or fund sufficient for paying those fees those local or provincial expenses of which the benefit is local or provincial what is laid out for example upon the police of a particular town or district ought to be defrayed by a local or provincial revenue and ought to be no burden upon the general revenue of the society it is unjust that the whole society should contribute towards an expense of which the benefit is confined to a part of the society the expense of maintaining good roads and communications is, no doubt, beneficial to the whole society, and may therefore, without any injustice, be defrayed by the general contributions of the whole society. 
This expense, however, is most immediately and directly beneficial to those who travel or carry goods from one place to another, and to those who consume such goods. The turnpike tolls in England, and the duties called pages in other countries, lay it altogether upon those two different sets of people, and thereby discharge the general revenue of the society from a very considerable burden. The expense of the institutions for education and religious instruction is likewise, no doubt, beneficial to the whole society, and may therefore, without injustice, be defrayed by the general contribution of the whole society. This expense, however, might perhaps with equal propriety, and even with some advantage, be defrayed altogether by those who receive the immediate benefit of such education and instruction, or by the voluntary contribution of those who think they have occasion for either the one or the other. When the institutions or public works, which are beneficial to the whole society, either cannot be maintained altogether, or are not maintained altogether, by the contribution of such particular members of the society as are most immediately benefited by them, the deficiency must, in most cases, be made up by the general contribution of the whole society. The general revenue of the society, over and above defraying the expense of defending the society, and of supporting the dignity of the chief magistrate, must make up for the deficiency of many particular branches of revenue. The sources of this general or public revenue I shall endeavor to explain in the following chapter. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part H